Women aren't allowed to be police detectives in 1908 Los Angeles. But that's never stopped Anna Blanc. Besides, it's not her fault she keeps stumbling across corpses, is it? Or that she's the keenest legal mind this side of Sherlock Holmes. We'll join the lovelorn, whiskey-swilling, fallen socialite next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. iHeartRadio is now number one in podcasting, by the way, which is a nice thing to see pop up on your app. This week, we'll see a familiar face in the passenger seat of our time machine as we travel back to Gilded Age Los Angeles. Our guest is Jennifer Kinchelow, and she's here to chat about her latest Anna Blanc mystery novel, The Body in Griffith Park. You can catch our chat on her debut novel, The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, and her second in the series, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, in our archives at iHeartRadio, stream it at historyauthor.com, iTunes, or wherever you're listening. You can also visit our guest online at jenniferkinchelow.com, Find her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Her last name is spelled K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. Like myself, Jennifer Kinchelow first trained as a scientist, not an author. Perhaps that explains why her Anna Blanc investigative mysteries have such an air of reality about them. Her day job now is in Kinchelow Health, a consulting firm, and she worked as a policy researcher at UCLA. And it's no mystery how she went from a pipette and PhD to a pen and paper. Her writing is really strong. It earned both the Colorado Gold Award for Mystery and the Mystery and Mayhem Award, as well as spots as a finalist for the McCavity Sue Fetter Historical Mystery Award, the Left Coast Crime Lefty Award for Best Historical Mystery Novel, and the Colorado Authors League Award for Genre Fiction. Okay, now that our time machine has dropped us off in the era of ostrich feather hats, watch fobs, and Pullman cars, let's join Jennifer Kinchelow and solve the mystery of The Body in Griffith Park. Joined via Skype by Jennifer Kinchelow, author of The Body in Griffith Park and Anna Blanc Mystery. Jen, welcome back to the History Author Show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I can always tell when I'm excited about a book because I start hitting the mic and hitting the table because I'm gesticulating. It's as if the, <laughs> <laughs> the joy that the book brings me just starts bubbling out of me and I, I simply can't contain it. I, I start to just get a little bit spastic with my arms and legs because <laughs> I, can't, I can't contain it. Your novels really are rare in that way that I finish one and... I don't just sit back and say, well, that was an enjoyable story. I like that book. I immediately start nagging you for a timetable. <laughs> my last question is usually, okay, when's the next one coming? <laughs> I become your nag. I start saying, come on. The Body in Griffith Park is your third book. And so readers may wonder if they can just pick it up or if they have to read the other two first. I saw you pose that question on your Facebook page. 
my response was that the Anna Blanc mysteries are a series, but not a serial. So you can enjoy them one, two, three, as I did. You can enjoy them three, two, one. You can pick them up in any order that you want. You can, because you do very well where you hint at what came before. And if people are curious, they can go back and read previous books. How much of that is by design so that you're not just writing a serial, but you're writing something where people can pick it up and find a different flavor, a different scene of Anna's life in each book, no matter where they start? With series, ideally, you always want each book to stand alone. And the challenge with that is providing enough backstory that the characters and the new story make sense. You have the same challenges you have with the first book or a standalone where you have to get people invested in the characters and have them know who Anna is because it's so much more interesting to watch people you know and see them take action and see them move through the story. So I think ideally I would have people start with book one because I think it makes books two and three richer, but there are plenty of readers who didn't read book one who started with book two and were just quite satisfied. So yeah, that, I mean, that's the goal. It's just that trick of doing exposition effectively without taking too much space and making sure the characters are rich enough without the backstory. I definitely found them rich characters. I came to a conclusion just as you picked up the phone and I told you I enjoyed this book so much. And that was that I never get tired with Anna Blanc. She can be tiring because she's just a bundle of energy is your character. But I never find her, okay, she's going to do the same thing here again. I don't feel like I'm watching Three's Company where every <laughs> single plot is the same, right? right? There's going to be some crazy misunderstanding and Mr. Furley's going to do something or the Ropers <laughs> or whatever happens. Like, And yes, it's carried because you had great acting. You had... John Ritter, you had some really funny situations there, and it was light and campy, and you can certainly enjoy Three's Company, but you do feel like you're getting the same thing again and again, and it is just carried by the characters. The Anna Blanc series, The Body in Griffith Park, I didn't feel as if I was just rereading the same book, that you were just rewriting the same book that you'd written twice before. She's always changed a little bit. She's grown and learned a little bit. And this is just like a real person. That's what you want to see into a real person. You want to see them again and have them be the same but different. That's the challenge. When you go to a high school reunion, you say, gosh, that guy who was the quarterback on the team, he's he's still the same guy that he was back then. And not everybody is, but they've lived 20, 30, 40 years since you graduated high school. But there's some things that will be the same that they've hopefully built on. Hopefully we've all grown at those reunions and you want to check in with friends. And that's how I feel about Anna Blanc. You want to meet up with a friend again. She becomes a friend to me as a reader. And I want to know, where's that next book, Jennifer? I'll ask you. Come on. <laughs> how's it going? How are things? You check in with you, which I don't do with every author. It's very rare that your life is smoothly moving from one thing to the next, too. You have this relationship of Anna Blanc and Joe Singer. No relationship is smooth, much less dating, much less dating in this period of the early 20th century. 
That's part of her character. She's a passionate person, but independent. What a great inner conflict for a woman in that period. She can want two conflicting things equally passionately at the same time. It's just a wonderful thing to read about and to take that ride with her. I think if anybody has ever on a small level thought, what am I going to have for dinner? And you don't know. You can't choose between two completely different things that you want both of them very much and you can't order both that's a lot of Anna Blanc's life having those two things do you get any pressure to end the Sam and Diane dynamic there so you can have old 80s tv shows cheers right do you get any pressure to end that interaction between the two of them and grow things for Anna and Joe into maybe a Macmillan and wife style (laughs) crime fighting team because I'm sure many readers are just as passionate as I am. And maybe they say to you, come on, get them together. How are people reacting to that relationship? Uh, so, you know, I get all kinds of different reactions from readers. I mean, that's one of the things about writing a book. The reader brings so much to the story. So no two people read the same book. People love their relationship overall. They like the back and forth. I've had people be mad at Anna. I've had people be mad at Joe. (laughs) It's hard to sustain that tension, that sort of sexual tension between two characters over the course of many, 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 many books. And I've had one friend who's a New York Times bestselling author suggested that I kill Joe off. (laughs) and start again with somebody new. So I I really don't know what's going to happen to the relationship. I haven't planned out the whole series. I'm discovering it as I go along. I'm not even sure what their relationship is going to look like in this next book. I'm just going to see how it unfolds. It's nice to be able to have that input from other people, too, that are reading it and are as invested. I think it's a real tribute to your writing, a real credit to your writing. Well, I would say it's the conflict that makes books interesting. So the more conflict in a novel, the more people become hooked into it. So there'll always be conflict. As long as Joe's live and kicking, there'll always be conflict. (laughs) Your previous novel, The Woman in the Camphor Trunk, starts off with Anna fleeing a police officer as she's hauling a severed head in a bucket. What a great, (laughs) vivid image that is. And... I'm sure that it was tempting to repeat what worked so well when you wrote the third book, The Body in Griffith Park. Instead, we open The Body in Griffith Park to find Anna in the kitchen at the police station, in her office. It's not a very romantic place. It's not a very exciting place. It's just where you go to keep your cola or whatever she has in those days. I forget what it is. She has a tin of something, tin of kippers. What is it? Yeah. What her lunch is. (laughs) And yet you still infuse that with tension in those first few pages. And I imagine it's a different sort of work. You work a different muscle there to be able to write that, to get that opening without just saying, here's another corpse, without just doing what to make yet another TV reference. Jessica Fletcher, right? At the beginning of every murder she wrote, there's going to be a body somewhere. You don't want to be anywhere near that woman because somebody's always <laughs> going to die. It's sort of a easy thing to do. It's maybe what even readers expect is you just have a corpse show up and then she's going to go and solve it. One, two, three. And it would be just as exciting, I'm sure. But I found it interesting that you open this book with an office scene, which is such a simple, very usual moment. And then you grow from there into the extremeness of her usual life, chasing a killer, which is completely out of the ordinary. So why that choice to open this book? In a sense, it's extraordinary in that Anna is a police matron with the LAPD. And she's very young to be a police matron. And 
you know, she has this different life taking care of women in the jails and helping the detectives. So I felt like the head in the bucket was kind of, you know, that's a one-off. I don't want to go jump the shark and try and think of a weirder thing every time. You know what I mean? But I think the important thing is to induce your characters in an interesting way, establishing your setting. So, um, the severed head scene said a lot about who Anna is as a character, her impulsiveness, her nerves of steel, her passion for trapping criminals, her do whatever it takes attitude. But I think there's other things people have to learn about Anna too. And so those were kind of more the focus in the third book. I find a good character, like for instance, the Sopranos, I guess I'm thinking a lot about TV today, but anyway, <laughs> on The Sopranos, everybody is such a character that you can just sit and watch them eat dinner and you can imagine the conversation. You can imagine because they always do have that conflict that you were talking about. I know David Chase, the creator, said the important thing to know about the show is nobody's ever telling the truth. And if you watch it that way, you see everybody's trying to get a little bit on top of someone else. And we as viewers know the truth. So we know already what's happening. Not that Anna is lying all the time. She's certainly trying to conceal things and balance these multiple worlds that she has. But she's somebody that does have that kind of fleshed out 3D life about her. She is trying to do things. She's trying to conceal little things. For instance, at one point you have her touch typing and she types out just a bunch of gibberish, which I thought was was pretty cool because it's hard to type out something just randomly. I wanted to ask you about that. That's a thing about her where you go and you just want to see her maybe in her office. At least that's how I felt. I liked that it started off with some tension, but a different sort of tension where you can be just as tense in your office because that's a very real world moment. We all know what it's like to be tense at work or something. It doesn't have to be running along the beach trying to catch a killer or with a severed head in a bucket. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's the art of writing is you have authors, writers who are very accomplished at their craft, who can make any situation tense and interesting and multi-layered. I mentioned about her having to fake it until she makes it, I guess we would say in modern parlance, as a police matron. It's not a job she's trained for, not a job she wants. She wants to be a detective, but she can't be. So this is the closest she can get to the action that she seeks. When she was pretending to touch type on a typewriter, you have her just put out a smear of letters there. And the letters are A D F L P W M C C O R E. JP, a semicolon and an exclamation point at the end. And I thought to myself, it's hard to just write things that look random. So I wanted to ask you a question you probably will never get again about the body body in Griffith Park. And that is, it's hard to pick random numbers or random password. That's why we use words like password Mm -hmm. sometimes. So how did you work out that detail? Is there some hidden code there? Or did you just really just type it out and that was it? I just typed without looking and that is what I got. So, (laughs) um, you know, I just made my fingers go like Anna would have. And that's something in the first book she did because she had to do typing when she first was hired by the police department. So she did not know how to type. So she would fake it. And so she's still doing that in book three. But it was me trying to be Anna, trying to let her randomness flow through my fingers and I thought it was worth noting that they're all caps, too, which is kind of a nice <laughs> touch because it gives you visually the idea that the person is banging away on them and making them all caps, even though that's not how typewriters work. <laughs> uh-huh. 
The Secret Life of Anna Blanc and The Woman in the Camphor Trunk both had those law and order torn from the headlines elements to their plots, even if they were headlines from over 100 years ago, neither of us being stranger to old news articles. We like to go through those newspaper archives. What inspired this tale of the corpse that Anna finds covered in ants rotting there in Griffith Park? Well, if you Google body in Griffith Park, <laughs> you will get pages and pages and pages because, you know, over <laughs> over the years, lots of bodies have been dumped in Griffith Park. And, and Griffith Park has a fantastic history, a ghost story and a curse. Griffith Park is one of the largest city parks in the country, and it's in Los Angeles. And um, it used to be, in the mid-19th century, a big, rich ranch belonging to a man named Don Antonio Feliz. He lived there with his niece, Petronia. He was a bachelor. And he died. And as he lay dying, two shysters came and messed with his will so that Petronia, who was supposed to get everything, the niece Petronia, she got nothing and they got all the land. Legend has it, she dropped dead on the spot, cursing the land and anyone who has anything to do with it. So that plays into this book. And that's kind of the main Griffith Park history. But the real history is the storyline of the Jonquil Cafe and Apartments and the Black Pearls. So the Jonquil Cafe and the resort that are in the book where the women, they're working women, but they're young. And the madam, she's kind of a madam, hooks them up with rich men to be their mistresses. And she takes some of the money. That is all straight out of history. And the Black Pearl was the name of the man who he would visit twice a day. He'd bring in his friends to meet these young girls, too. So he was called the Black Pearl or sometimes Mr. King because he would just throw his money around. And that storyline intrigued me. And there's more to that storyline that I want to share, but I can't because it'll give away all kinds of secrets <laughs> yeah. in the book. But it's it's based on history and you can read in the author's notes more about that. You mentioned an author friend recommending that you kill off Joe Singer. And as I'm sure many of your readers sort of clutching their pearls there, I'm not even wearing pearls and I was clutching <laughs> up the, up the thinking, hey, you don't want a character you like to get bumped off, although it is sometimes required for a novelist. But it made me think of Arthur Conan Doyle. He famously grew so tired of Sherlock Holmes and all of his sanctimony and his smartness that he bumped him off. He, here he kills the most famous detective of all time, decides he doesn't want anything more to do with him. Joe Singer does nickname Anna Sherlock. He calls her that from time to time. So I wonder if after three books and despite the success with the Anna Blanc mysteries, you ever itched to write about another character and think maybe if not throwing her off a cliff there with Professor Moriarty, you think about maybe just giving her a rest and, and going back to her writing something else at the same time? Or does she just, and this is what my guess is, demand that you write about her because she is such a strong character? Yeah, I, I'm not done with Anna. And I'm not done with 1900s Los Angeles either. There, I have so many really fascinating stories that I get out of the newspaper of crimes that I like to fictionalize and incorporate in the books. And so I've got a few more books planned out. But Anna herself, when I was a little girl, I was fortunate enough to know a few women born at the same time as Anna, both my great grandmothers. I knew them. I spoke with them. 
I had a relationship with them. And I love the idea that my path could have crossed with my fictional character. And so I want Anna to grow old. And I have pictures of my great grandmothers up on my wall. And one of them, she did many, many things. But once she sprayed a cop down with a garden hose, because he was <laughs> complaining about her dog barking. And my other great grandmother was very glamorous. So I like to think there's a little bit of them and Anna. Isn't it great? A little moment like that. I always think when someone will say, my great grandmother did this or my grandfather did that. I never met him, but I heard this story. Yeah. It, it can make you a little nervous walking down the street because these are the things <laughs> that people are going to remember in 50 or 100 years about you. There'll be this one little moment that you had in your life that other people will remember. But what a cool little detail. And certainly talk about fleshing out characters. There's a real person that is fleshed out in so many ways just by that little anecdote. Yeah. I mentioned Anna's habit of holding two conflicting opinions simultaneously with equal conviction. Often she's torn between society's demands that she conform and her desire to go her own way, to follow her dreams, to investigate crimes. It's something she really finds fascinating and it's so fulfilling, as you can tell when you read the Anna Block Mysteries. This is captured in a note to a secret admirer that comes very early in the book. She writes him, Dear unknown man, please desist in giving me whiskey. I insist, unless you absolutely must. <laughs> <laughs> and I just laughed out loud at that, at the two conflicting things there. I insist, but, you know, if you feel you have to continue sending me gifts, then feel free to, you, you could continue to do so, just leaving the door open a little bit. I, I wondered what inspired that note, or if by now with Anna, these things just come so naturally because you know how she reacts. Well, yeah, I know in so many ways. Well, we know Anna tells tall tales always. She lies frequently to others, but she also practices self-deception. And Anna also believes that God and the saints are watching her. So sometimes she's trying to, you know, do what she wants, but cover her backside. So this is Anna covering her backside, maybe a little self-deceptively. Well, I told him to stop, but really, you know, the subtext of that message is please keep sending me whiskey. <laughs> yeah. So throughout the book, she has a lot of cognitive dissonance. And so she kind of separates and she tries to please God and the saints and do what she's supposed to do while doing what she feels like she must do. It's the perfect setup, too. It's a perfectly crafted sentence. You could see her arguing, as you said, if she was in confession. Well, I didn't want to be rude. I had to say, unless you have to, what am I going to say? I don't want to be a bad person. It reminds you of the economy of words and how effective good writing can be. Thank you. We're speaking with Jennifer Kinchelow, author of The Body in Griffith Park, an Anna Blanc mystery. This is the third in a series that debuted with The Secret Life of Anna Blanc and continued to roll with The Woman in the Camphor Trunk. You can visit our guest at jenniferkinchelow.com or find her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Amy Stewart, the New York Times best-selling author of Girl Waits with Gun, calls The Body in Griffith Park, quote, a wild romp through turn-of-the-century Los Angeles. Booklist writes of the Anna Blanc series, fans of historical fiction starring feisty heroines will love this crime-loving suffragette. 
Jen, I could read a dozen quotes praising the Anna Blanc mystery series, some of them even from me, because I am a big fan of the series. But as they say in the novel bag, show don't tell. So I like to ask authors to read a selection from the book. This not only gives us a flavor for their writing, but what they choose tells us something about what they find significant, what they like to highlight about their story. So set this passage up from The Body in Griffith Park and have at it. Thank you. So Anna Blanc is a 20-year-old assistant police matron. Her love interest, Joe Singer, is a detective. He's a couple years older, and he's the son of the chief of police. Police matrons are not allowed to court, and Anna and Joe are secretly engaged, and they want to be alone, but they can't go to his apartment that doesn't allow young ladies, and she can't go to her apartment. They don't have a car, so they sneak off to Griffith Park during the workday to be alone and spoon. But Griffith Park is under a curse by Petronia, and things go terribly wrong. So this is chapter three. The wind rose suddenly, carrying with it an ungodly odor. Joe lifted his head. What is that smell? Anna smelled it too. She gagged a little at the scent, like rotting pork in a sweet sauce. He groaned. I'm finally alone with the girl of my dreams, and some creature decides to die in the most romantic spot in the park. It's probably a possum. Can't you find it and fling it off the hill with a stick? Anna slid off Joe so he could stand. His hair poked out in odd directions from Anna's caressing fingers, but he still looked good enough to eat, and the front of his drawers was pooching out most interestingly. She was starting to see the shape of things. Anna rose gracefully in her drawers and chemise, stuffed her feet into unhooked boots, and took his hand. She wasn't going to miss one moment of touching him, stench or no. They turned in a circle, sniffing the air. It must be upwind. Joe licked his finger and held it up, then tugged her toward the edge of the hillside and a panoramic view of the city below. Anna saw a trail of ants marching in a row and followed them. There, near the edge, she saw the source of the smell. A dead man lay on his side with a hole in his head. His hair and face were covered with ants, as if they found whatever oil his barber used particularly delectable. A revolver lay in his limp, open hand. Los Angeles spread out before him. There you go. <laughs> My first thought is that you can get your books on audiobook. Is that correct? You can get the first two books on yeah. audiobook? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to mention that. Yeah. It's, it is nice to listen to. To me, it reminds me of the old radio serials that we used to get back in the early days of radio. So not too long after Anna's time compared to now, where we're over a century later, because you paint the picture so well, and it really lends itself to listening to it. There's a music to the way that it comes out, even though here we're talking about this poor dead fellow that she finds there. I think because it's the era, and because you write in that voice of the era, and we hear her thoughts, it feels to me very like you could just keep continuing listening to it. Yeah, I love the audiobooks. I love audiobooks. I produce them myself. I didn't sell the rights to my publisher, and the narrator that does them, that performs the stories, is Maura Quirk, and she is Audible Book of the Year award winner. She's won several Audi Awards, Earphones Awards. She's got her TV show, has an Emmy. She's quite something because she does all of the accents, 
of men and women from European accents, German, Scottish, English. She does West Coast, South United States, East Coast. She sings. She's just a mind blowing. And because I'm such an audiobook fan, having her partner with me on this project has been just incredible. In her capacity as an assistant police matron, I wanted to get back to Anna's whole job, the kind of things that she has to do. It's always a little bit funny because she gets something flung at her that's not something she wants to do, that's something very boring. And as you were saying there, that she doesn't really have the skills to do things like type and sewing and the things that you might expect her to do because she did grow up as a socialite. She had people to do that. So she wouldn't have ever learned those skills. One of the things she does is help organize a meeting to reform prostitutes, to give them a job outside of the life you were just hinting at there of being kept women. One of the ladies in the body in Griffith Park testifies at the event, and she says, quote, The former reticence on matters of sex is giving way to a frankness that would startle even Paris. I hereby declare that it is sex o'clock in America. So that line has to jump out at anybody, Jen. So tell us the story behind that line of dialogue. So this is a little glimpse at progressive era thought. And people have always and still do blame women for all kinds of things and saw prostitutes as fallen women who were there because of a moral failure instead of what was more often the case, economic issues. So here we have a group of very intelligent women who are trying to change society. They're trying to eradicate prostitution. And one of the things they're trying to do is give prostitutes options. So the Friday morning club that's in the book, The Body in Griffith Park, is straight out of the history books. And they were actually involved in and around commenting on the scandal at the Jonquil Apartments. And so this quote comes from the lips of one of the women of the Friday Morning Club. And their idea of frankness is different than our idea of frankness, but kind of following the Gilded Age, it is a new era where people are starting to talk a little bit more frankly, about sex. So not frank enough for Anna's taste, but this is a, an actual quote from an actual woman of the Friday Morning Club, and that's who she is in the book. Part of that maybe is why this struck me as your most gritty novel of the three. It deals with the sex trade, and you touched on some of those things in the previous book in the underbelly of Los Angeles, which is where you're going to find these sort of crimes that Anna likes to investigate, that she goes and finds like a bloodhound. Speaking over there, we just saw her sniffing around in the woods, literally for a dead body. So that sort of degradation of women, one underage girl in particular in this book, you had women like that in the previous book, the woman in the camp for trunk. This idea of being trapped in brothels, it's something that I think people have seen the movie. I booked a lady once when I was in TV that wrote a book on the sex trade, and she said, my gosh, that movie with Julia Roberts, Pretty Woman, she says it really makes people have completely the wrong idea. Women think that maybe that could be a romantic job, that that could be a good job. But you delve into that here, and you do find some women, which I guess in any job, but especially this, who do want to get out of it. How do you go about writing about heavy topics like that. Obviously, you have bodies galore here piling up around Anna. She's not quite in the league of Jessica Fletcher yet. She hasn't <laughs> found herself around quite that many murders, but eventually it looks like she's on track to. So how do you write about those heavy topics, 
but still keep Anna light as R.T. Book Reviews described her, I Love Lucy meets Agatha Christie. Well, Anna, because of her flaws, her naivete, her self-absorption, they make for good comedy. And you take someone who's incredibly innocent and you juxtapose her with the underbelly, like you said, with madams and mackinaws and prostitutes. There's all kinds of opportunity to sort of shine a light on that contrast, which is which are funny. And most of the humor in the book is Anna's inner dialogue or things she says or does. And usually it's because of either she's not being honest with herself or it just shines a light on her limitations. I've always used humor to deal with everything, to amuse myself as I go through the boringness of day-to-day life when it is dull. And then also when things are sad or frightening, humor is something I've always used to cope. And I think that it comes naturally. And I don't actually know if I could write a serious book. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to write something like Sherlock Holmes, where he's just always dour and uptight. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's something you, I enjoy in the book, definitely. And to have those inner conflict when you're watching from the outside an inner conflict or somebody's even telling you a thing like that, it's amusing to us. When you're living through it, it's frustrating as heck, and you don't want anyone laughing at you. But with her, you enjoy watching it. You enjoy watching her race from one topic to the next, one crisis to the next, being torn two different ways. I thought it was clever part of the book you wrote that she wishes she had two sisters. She wishes that she was triplets. And she says, then there will be an Anna for this and an Anna for that. And then I could be here. And I just laughed because that's something that you would think when you're in her head because she is self-absorbed and she just assumes that if she had triplets, she would be the top one and they would just be copies of her, not their own person. <laughs> you know, not their own person at all. They would just be copies of her and they would do they would want to do exactly what she wants and that's just how life would be. Well, that's not how it works. If you've ever had a you know, a younger brother, older brother, there could be so many differences. It goes all the way back to the Bibles. You were talking about the idea of someone being different, being conflicted, they would have the same conflicts that she does and makes different choices. And I I like that. I like to still be racing along with her all that time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I think it's fun. And I think it's so great to talk with you about it, Dean, because you so get it. Like, you so get the subtext and that particular subtext of the triplets. I love writing for people like you who really understand what I'm trying to do. Because from time to time, I'll have a reader whose brain isn't wired for subtext and they're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you can still enjoy it. Everyone can still enjoy these books. I know that because I know a lot of people don't read for that kind of thing. They don't want to see the, they don't look for it anyway. Not that it's obvious here. I always talk about the pencil sketches that you paint before you paint the painting that you draw draw a pencil sketch then you paint it in you erase those you take them out or when you do blueprints and I always pay a compliment to an author and I'll say you don't see any of those but I look for them so you can still see some of it just the way if I walk in a building because I did my own kitchen I redesigned it and I do all the work myself I do the tiling I do the woodworking I run my router made a island top 
that's something where if I go into somebody's house, I'll say, oh, how did you do this? What did you do? I'll want to see those joints. Yeah. Whereas if someone walks in from the outside, they just say nice table and they don't worry about what's under it. I thought of that in particular because I just made a note here while you were talking to thank you off the air, but I'll do it here. You were so kind to send my mother your first two books, and I really appreciated that. And she loves them, but I'm sure oh, she's good. not thinking of, you know, she's not thinking like a writer. She's thinking like a reader and she's enjoying them. So I don't want people to get the idea from what you said that anybody's going to pick up the books and, and not really get them. I think you'll enjoy them. You don't need to be a mechanic to enjoy the ride in a, in a fine car. You just need to be in the car. And when you get in the car, you'll enjoy the ride. You don't have to worry about why or who made the car, or who designed yeah. it. Yeah. And I wanted to mention one of the things there, one of the ways that you create that effect of speed of racing along with Anna is you use short clipped sentences and that reflects so well her rapid analysis of situations and the way that she sometimes careens about to different topics at the same time that she's trying to just do something like make a sandwich or she's trying to spend some time alone with Joe Singer or pretend to be working when she doesn't have any clue how to work a typewriter. I wondered if that reflects your thought process or if it's a narrative voice that you've developed living in Anna's head through these three books. Does that come naturally or is that something you remind yourself that that's how your character thinks? Well, Anna's always racing from thing to thing. You know, sometimes she's under time pressure or she's got more work than she can do. So she's always looking for efficiencies and that is how I am. <laughs> I'm super busy. And that requires that you be decisive. So she's being very decisive and she's having to think quick and make choices. And I think that my words are trying to capture that sort of reality for her. And yeah, it's just how I am. I'm just how I am. Too busy. How do you choose when you set out to write the body in Griffith Park. You said you have many newspaper articles and a lot of ideas catch your mind. What is it about now having written three books that makes one idea stand out above the rest or makes two or three that you decide, I'm going to combine all of these in and then do what you're talking about. Be decisive there and decide, okay, those are just going to have to wait those other ones and I'm going to go full bore on these. Well, the story about Petronia is just too irresistible. I mean, it's a ghost story. It's something a lot of Angelinos are familiar with. It's something that Anna and Joe would have been familiar with. That curse on Griffith Park, you know, of course, that continues on in history. I mean, it's something, it's interesting to look up if anyone is interested in that. So then the Jonquil Cafe and Resort the whole underage girl thing is of such a concern then and now. But there's also a link in the history to Anna's world that I can't talk about because it'll <laughs> give it all away. But uh, that was an irresistible pull to me to write that story. Just the link between Anna's world and the prostitution going on at the Jonquil Resort. Well, we have time for one final question, and it's this Assuming you don't disappoint loyal readers like myself, there I go clutching my pearls again, <laughs> and pull in, pull in Arthur Conan Doyle and kill off Anna Blanc, can you give us a clue? You are a mystery writer after all. Can you give us a clue about what hijinks your heroine might come up with in book four, something you're reaching into that pile of endless old newspaper articles to flesh out this world and bring it to life for us here in the modern world? Well... 
I'm not all that far along in writing the book, although I did have to write a summary of the book for my publishing house. But there's a fireplace that is torn down, revealing a frightening secret. There are secret societies, and there are mummies. Wow, a mummy. Yeah. That's pretty cool. No Abbott and Costello, though, I bet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I can't wait. I have to tell you, I mean it sincerely when I say that. Jennifer Kinchelow, the Bonnie and Griffith Park. Gosh, it was great to get it. And now I'm in that period after Christmas morning where you're a little kid. You enjoy playing with those toys. You have all your toys. But gosh, the package is open. Now you have to wait a whole nother long year before you can find anything under the tree again, other than maybe something the dog leaves. <laughs> so it's too bad. It's too bad. I wish I could have it right now, but I do so appreciate your process and listening to you talk about how you write the books. I will maybe have to go back and read the previous two, which I only rarely do, but I do so enjoy it. <laughs> I look forward to book four, just as I looked forward to the body in Griffith Park right after I finished the woman in the camphor trunk. I'm really pleased to find Anna, the same young woman and yet grown the same young woman, only better in this mystery. I look forward to book four. I wish you the best of luck with book three here. And I hope that the audiobooks are something that really do well, because it sounds like people will get a real idea from you that you have a professional doing them and it's not a monotone read. I'm looking forward to hearing all about that as that progresses and good luck. Get to work on that mummy. Thank you, Dean. Again, the book is The Body in Griffith Park, an Anna Blanc mystery. As always, You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there whenever you buy any book that we feature, whether it's one of Jennifer's three books, which are all excellent, or any of the others that we have in a wide range of topics. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Jennifer Kinchelow for joining us a third time and for weaving another entertaining, rip-roaring, seat-of-your-calico-pants mystery. Remember to check out our archives for those other two chats with Jennifer. Those are about her debut novel, The Secret Life of Anna Blanc, and The Woman in the Camphor Trunk. You can visit her online at jenniferkinchelow.com or find her on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. That last name again is K-I-N-C-H-E-L-O-E. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. And I've been posting things on LinkedIn, too, so you can find me there if you want to connect. That's it for this mysterious installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. Or you can enjoy any of the written Q&As we've been posting at HistoryAuthor.com. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same on the east. Sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in 